We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Woi Wurrung Nation, traditional custodians of the lands of which we record this podcast. We recognise the care and cultivation of country by First Peoples and pay respects to Elders past and present. That respect is extended to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to the Diggers Podcast, the podcast for subversive gardeners looking to explore the unconventional and potentially controversial concepts that push the boundaries of traditional gardening. Join us as we challenge the status quo and discover new ways to grow and cultivate the world around us. to the Diggers podcast series for the Subversive Gardener, where we discuss the hot horticultural topic, eucalypts, friend and foe. The iconic tree has been a topic of conversation and debate for many years, and over the course of this series, we'll be talking to people from all sides of the argument, plus exploring more widely trees in our urban and wild areas. Hello to you. My name is Chloe Foster, horticulturalist, teacher and broadcaster from Melbourne, Australia, hosting on behalf of the Diggers Club. Diggers is a gardening club and community specialising in the conservation and preservation of a wide range of heirloom vegetables and rare fruits and plants. Today, I'm chatting with Clive Blazy, founder of the Diggers Club and Diggers Foundation. Clive started Diggers in 1978 as a mail-order heirloom seed business with his wife, Penny. It still functions like that today, but it has certainly spread its roots further into the ground. Welcome to the podcast, Clive. Thank you. It's great to be here. It is. We're going to have some fun today. All right, let's get stuck into it. My first question for you, are you a gardener? Well, actually, the very first day we started, Mm. I was a highly trained uh, marketer and my father had started up Hortico, which was a well-known brand, and I'd been uh, managing Hortico for about six years. So I felt pretty confident that uh, when we started our first ads, mail order, you know, we were going to hit the target pretty well. And the first person who responded to the ad was a person who had about 10 years or 20 years more experience than me. And she asked me for all these fantastic plants, which I'd never heard of. So let's say on the first day, we had a marketing hit, (laughs) but a, uh, a great lack of confidence that I was up to it. So that's why we spent four or five years flat out learning about gardening before we bought Heronswood and put into practice. All right. Let's get stuck into a couple of questions, a couple of topics about eucalypts. Australia's favourite tree last year, according to an ABC poll, was the river red gum, which to anyone out there that loves scientific names is eucalyptus camelgulensis. Of the top 10 trees in that poll, six of them were eucalypts. Australians are completely obsessed with this genus and group of plants. Why? Well, that's uh, uh, a very good question because I'm sure you, you need um, a whole lot of psychologists to get to the bottom of it because really the subject of this talk is, is whether it's suitable for planting in gardens. We're just putting in an arboretum at the moment 
on some river flats and I've got about a thousand river red gums <laughs> and we're definitely not going to get rid of any of them. They're the most magnificent trees, mm. but they're also incredibly dangerous. One branch falling down if you were camping is calamitous. So even that tree, which is probably the most prolific in terms of in every state, I think that's right. It doesn't, it is. doesn't grow in the Alps, but it grows almost all the way to the tropics. So that's an amazing tree and an incredibly beautiful one. Mm. In the wild. In the wild, yeah. yes. <laughs> and, and as that poll showed, it would have been really nice if they had have let people answer why they voted for the eucalypt or, or those particular species because, and this is why we're doing this podcast, why are we so obsessed well, with this? yes, I, I would love to do the thesis on it actually <laughs> because I've been anti-eucalypt as a plant uh, for our gardens for at least 25 years. But I'm like everybody else as soon as I go overseas and then you smell um, the eucalypt uh, scent, you know, you, you, you're nostalgic. Oh, it's the most emotional thing about um, it's incredible. home. I remember when I came home from overseas for the very first time and was driving through Warrandyte, not oh, far yeah. from where we are now, and winding down my window. It was a hot summer day and the smell of Australia flying back through the window at me and I was completely surrounded by very tall eucalypts and the well, smell was, and I can still remember the smell. So my image of eucalypts overseas has been contaminated by the smell of smoke because we've lost our restaurant in Heronswood because of a fire that came from a eucalyptus flammable uh, tree in, 19, in 2014. So mm. we've had absolutely disastrous consequences as a result of that. You're not a lover of eucalypts in gardens or in urban areas? I'm a lover of eucalypts in the bush. Yes. But not in the garden, yes. And that's a contentious issue about planting eucalypts in gardens because my knowledge base lies in the Australian flora and I love, I love Australian plants, I love natives. But I wouldn't plant a eucalyptus, a river red gum in the garden um, I wouldn't put a mountain ash in the garden either, and they're the ones that are notorious for being branch droppers. Well, uh, the first tree I planted was a lemon-scented gum. Oh, they're I, a big one and too. I had a three-story terrace in South Melbourne, and it got to the third floor in the th- in about the fifth year. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I then then learnt incredibly early how quickly they grew. Not that I had to chop it down or anything. I wasn't uh, against it then. Mm. But my first experience was astounding, and I suppose everyone supports eucalypts because you get them faster to maturity probably than any other tree. They are quick to grow. There's probably a couple of other species that are quicker to colonate. I'm thinking wattles, mm-hmm. probably quicker to grow than the eucalypts, but that is one good thing about them. But now you correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to make an assumption about the eucalypts that you don't like is they're the big, very, very large tree forms. There's um, a whole heap of smaller species yeah. that would be better for a garden. Yes, no. Um, but they're not, a, they're not the shade tree ones, those smaller species. Yeah, well, I, I've spent a lot of time skiing in the Alps and I love the snow gum mm. and uh, we actually want to list it in our catalogue in future. We have actually listed Eucalyptus minifera, which is a fantastic tree around Canberra, mm-hmm. but I think that's a problem for the flammability and I think if you plant, you know, the multi-trunk shorter varieties, 
you're not going to get the um, risk that you get with uh, large eucalypts mm. and the explosive nature of the oils. Mm. So I'm sure there's probably 20 or 50 different uh, shrubby types, but snow gum's the one that would be on my preferred list. I wonder what the other species of eucalypts were in that ABC poll. Yes. How we go? So we've got regnans, which gets... Was that in there? Yeah. Regnans gets up to 100 metres. Yep. And I've, I've actually walked through the Tasmanian I was going to mention that. ...quite recently because the, the trunk at the base is 22 metres around. And this one's only about 60 or 70 metres, but they can get to 100. So they... They match the sequoia, giant sequoia, in terms of world tallest tree. But they only take a couple hundred years to get up there instead of a couple of thousand years for the sequoia. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Um, We were talking about Tasmania before. So you and your family have done a lot of travel around Australia, but you particularly love Tasmania, and there's a lot of photos of the Tasmanian wilderness throughout the books We Speak for the Trees and Complete Guide to the Flower Garden that you've written. The gardens that you have created, particularly I'm thinking Heronswood, you love the Australian bush, but then you've got a completely exotic garden. Why? Well, um, I've been to Cradle Mountain over 35 times, um, so I, I love the alpine flora. I've also been to the wildflowers of Western Australia, so they're exquisite too. I walk and ski through, you know, the alpine areas. But I just cannot really see how you can, something that you like in the bush is going to make a good tree. Now, here's a good example here. The worst fire we had was in 2009 and we were in Tasmania doing the overland track and it was 46 degrees or 48 degrees on that Sunday and uh, we were walking through uh, the native bush, which was Nothophagus myrtle, Mm. And it was 26 degrees in Tasmania. And then when we got out the next day and I rang up my mate, he'd lost his farm at Warburton and I found out that it was uh, 46 degrees. So there there we are. There's a 20-degree difference between our native trees, which aren't eucalypts, let's say rainforest trees, mm. from our eucalypts, which are, um, I guess, really adapted to hot, dry conditions but unfortunately incredibly flammable. They are quite flammable. But what about, I mean, we're mainly talking about trees here, but some of the smaller shrubs through these areas of WA and Tasmania, yep. still, you still don't want to have them in your garden? Yes, I've, I've admitted to snow gums. Um, <laughs> look, uh, I really want a totally different garden to the bush. And why? Well, most of the native gardens that I look at let's say, in the Victorian Alps or the Tasmanian Alps, they're beautiful plants which you cannot grow in gardens. Mm. So I don't have any thought that I can create a garden that looks as good as what I Mm. see in the wild. The other thing is that eucalypts, apart from being lousy shade trees, they do have a sense of aridity about them. And the reason I like uh, the natives that come from our forests and a rainforest particularly, they're lush and green. So Mm. when you look outside on the hottest day, Mm. they're actually cooling. When you sit under one of those trees, it'll be 8 or 10 degrees cooler than a eucalypt. So we've actually done a lot of work on the hottest days 
checking out the temperature difference between eucalypts and other trees. Mm. And eucalypts are usually six to eight degrees hotter under them on a hot day. And, of course, you only get fires because the shade's so bad under a eucalypt that the soil dries out. So once the soil dries out and there's no moisture in the soil, that's when they're incredibly dangerous, which is what happens, you know, through a really hot summer and temperatures over 40 for four or five days. So I don't want a dry-looking garden, and I'm also, I guess, a, a great fan of the English flowering tradition. So we grow the most difficult sort of uh, flower borders, like herbaceous borders. Mm. We grow a lot of wildflowers, and there's hardly any Australian wildflowers that you can just scatter like you can a Flanders poppy. So in a sense, to create a terrific garden with native plants, I think is incredibly difficult. And I think I'd need more arid soil. Mm. And I want to grow vegetables and fruit, which needs means I need high nitrogen soils. So in a sense, there's they don't fit in with my concept of lushness and floral decorative. All right, I'll give you that. (laughs) No, look, one of the things that you're talking about with what the evergreen, exotic evergreen trees do versus the Australian um, trees do visually is that green lushness. And on a summer's day, yes, you know, get me under a fig tree or an oak or something that's not a eucalypt. The eucalypts do provide a a bit more sunlight in winter, though, which is a little bit of a bonus Will you give them that. But I do find that the Australian, the colours of the Australian flora calms me down a little bit more. I get really oversensitised by really lush green. Yep. It just, it seems too much. I mean, it because it seems exotic to me, like I'm not at home. So I uh, have a specific focus that my garden's got to look in really good in summer. Mm. Most of us can have a garden that looks okay. Obviously, the native garden would look much better in winter than it would in summertime. Mm, A lot of them do. And because I like flowers, that means we do really well with herbaceous borders. Why summer though? Why do you want flowers particularly? Oh, sorry. Well, that's the best time to be outside. So that's when you want to have um, picnics with your family and have Christmas with the family and enjoy it. Most of the trees actually in the Heronswood Garden are natives but there's not one eucalypt. We've got Tristanias and we've got uh, Cook's Pine. There's at least eight or ten different uh, species of natives which are pretty cooling. A lot of them at Heronswood, some of the original plantings, the trees in the garden? Yes. How old is Heronswood? Heronswood, the historic building was finished in 1873. And the, the the garden, which wasn't particularly designed by anyone, Latrobe Bateman, who was the architect and a fantastic landscape designer, was not around at the time, so he didn't mm. influence the development of the garden. So it was planted with a fairly haphazard mix of trees. Mm. Um, we have a gigantic Cook's Pine, which is probably the biggest one that I've ever seen in, in the world, but it's not a particularly handsome thing. Mm. And we've got uh, flame trees, Morton Bay figs. We've got a lot of Tristanias. So in terms of the nativism of the planting, we're, we're, 
we're we're pretty good about half and half, but we haven't got a eucalypt there in the garden at the moment. I think it's a sign of that sort of time of when they were planted. So in the late 1800s, um, I'm just thinking of Werribee Park Mansion Mm -hmm. and a lot of the other older public gardens and even private gardens in, let's say, you know, Melbourne, regional Victoria. But Werribee Park, there's, I was there recently, there's hardly a eucalypt planted there, but there's so many other specimen trees there. And you look at them and go, Actually, most of these are native. Yep. And but they're dark green. People wouldn't even think that they're from Australia. I think if you go back through the history of tree planting, the fad sort of started in the 30s or 40s, or maybe it was later than that. So Australians took quite a long time to adapt. So I, I suppose uh, you know, in our garden, uh, Cupressus macrocarpa, the gigantic cypress, was planted everywhere to give you a good windbreak. Mm. But, you know, that's a disastrous tree. It's too big and it drops branches and, and it's flammable. You can't prune it hard either. you can't. Um, so, I, you know, we, we made a lot of mistakes early on. Mm. And I think we fell in love with eucalypts probably as the second or third phase in our tree planting. It's probably the 30s, 40s or 50s. And we're still in that phase, I think. Mm. But I guess I've got to look at it through a different set of glasses to most people because I want my garden to look terrific in summertime and I want cool, refreshing feeling about. In other words, the garden's a cooling place I want to be in. Mm. You know, Heronswood's getting to about 80%, 90% right. That doesn't mean say it's, it's going to get 100 marks out of 100 in everybody's opinion. Mm. But in terms of what we're trying to achieve, we're getting pretty close to what we think is the best combination of plants, trees, and the house and the view. And, uh, you have, know, we, we get uh, f- fantastically positive comments back. So most people have a pretty uh, happy experience there. So you've had Heronswood for about, say, 40 years? Yeah. You say you're about 80% right. Have you ever thought that you were higher than 80% right? No. And then a drought's come along or there's been some weather events that have changed things? Well, um, yes, we've weathered all of those. I think it was the turn of the century. I'm pretty sure it had something to do with John Howard. As soon as he got in, we had drought after drought after (laughs) drought. And so suddenly we had to make sure that we mulched properly and we watered properly. So, you know, we've weathered and modified according to the right conditions because mm. the worst thing if you're a visitor mm. is for you to come to see us in January and it looks hot, dry and uh, uninspiring. I'm making an assumption, but what you would have thought would be have been 100% right when you first bought Heronswood. Have you got a different view of that, what, what that 100% oh, no, the garden is? garden was very ordinary. Um, didn't really have any nice trees other than a flame tree but and Morton Bay fig. Have you been working towards a similar 100% picture this whole time? Or oh, has I that changed? I, I don't think we're ever going to get to 100%. Okay. Um, 95%. Well, you know, we grow wildflowers and wildflowers look brilliant and then, you know, once they're finished, they're daggy. We grow a lot of vegetables once they're finished, there's daggy, you know, so you've got these peaks all the way along. Veggies do look daggy when they're finished, but a lot of the wildflowers, there is a form of beauty when Mm. they're finished. Yep. They all go different shades of brown. I'm thinking of Flomus, the Jerusalem sage, and the round, uh, is it Buddleia globosa? Mm-hmm. The the bright yellow globe buddleia, they yep. look beautiful when they're finished. Well, I think to answer that question, 
what we're trying to do is to make sure that uh, the garden looks best when most people want to come. And so that's from, let's say, October through to March. So that's why we use a lot of herbaceous perennials. Um, that's why our vegetable garden has a focal point of being not just a productive one, but, you know, we put in a vegetable parterre, which is designed for it to be beautiful no matter what um, goes into it. Tell me what a parterre is. Oh, well, it's a French word for pattern. It's all, all very simple. So um, I put the vegetable parterre in as six segments. Um, I'd set myself a task that I had to finish this part of the garden on a Sunday and I hadn't come up with any brainwaves until about uh, Saturday morning and then I decided the quickest and easiest thing I could do in a vegetable garden was a parterre. So this is somewhat an Australian version of what you would find in Chateau Villandry in France, which is a three-acre, incredibly beautiful garden planted out with fruit trees and vegetables. So they had three acres to look after and we only had about 20 square metres, but that was <laughs> that was the difference between the two budgets. Mm. And the trees that are in Heronswood would be starting to age now? They're surrounded by beautiful perennials. You've got your veggies there as well. The other la- So they're the, the lower layer. Yep. The taller layer, the upper story, your trees. How do you manage them as they're starting to age? The garden is not particularly well known for its um, trees. We've got a magnificent Morton Bay fig, which is native. We've got uh, the Cook's pine, which is from Vanuatu. We've got a flame tree. Uh, and we are losing some of the original trees, like Tristanias, which are another native, mm. which are, uh, we're going to have to replace. But I think it's just the same as everybody else's garden. After a while, with senescence, you might find uh, better choices to use in future than what was um, established. Mm. So I'm not saying we started off with a a very ordinary garden, but um, so we did have some good plantings with mm. which to work on. Let's move on and chat about the Garden of St Earth for a little while. Mm-hmm. How long has Diggers had that as part of its family? Um, look, the Garden of, of St Earth was settled in, or the site was settled in about 1860 and uh, Simmons Reef was part of the Gold Rush days, so the very same garden that Tommy Garnett uh, developed was actually the main street of Simmons Reef. Which Where is, is Simmons Reef? Sorry, Simmons Reef is about 5Ks from Blackwood. Um, Where is Blackwood? And, and Black, Blackwood is... Um, it, <laughs> I'm putting you um, on the very, spot. Very, very, not very far from Mount Macedon. It's very close to Dalesford. Beautiful. So now people know where Blackwood is. Yeah, and uh, Tommy Garnet was my headmaster. He was also Prince Charles or King Charles's headmaster. So I'm, I'm going to call him King few, Charles few, now. A few, that's right. A few years um, older than uh, Charlie Boy. Um, <laughs> but um, look, Tommy Garnet was probably Australia's finest garden writer. Mm. He was garden writer for the age. He started at sixty when he retired from Geelong Grammar. And I uh, was a passionate gardener, and he and his wife gardened there for about 20 years until he wanted to retire, and he wanted us to take it over, which we did. So we acquired it in 1996. 
So we've had it for 26 years. But I was lucky that um, we had an absolutely outstanding head gardener at the time and he put his hand up to look after it. So we spent more time on the Heronswood Garden and he focused Mm. on the uh, St Earth Garden. St Earth is quite different to Heronswood. It's, well, for one thing, it's not on the coast. It's very much inland in, in central Victoria. It is completely surrounded by flammable very <laughs> yes very thick australian yep. scrub yep and it's got uh, we got heaps of wattles and we got heaps of eucalypts we've also got um some magnificent oaks in there which are probably close to 100 years old so there's eucalypts that are planted within the boundaries yeah, wattle, of wattles the garden and eucalypts yep. are, are, are part of we haven't cut any of those down the point is that uh, on a 35 degree day we have to close the garden down because it's a very dangerous place to be because it's not just a, a fire that might start in our place. We're right in the bush. Mm. And so um, we have to close the garden down for most of January and uh, it's in a good rainfall area. So it has some very special times to look at it, particularly before Christmas and in autumn. And that's in a way why... Heronswood focuses on December and January and February as its main uh, viewing time. So we we try to balance it out for our membership mm. so that there's always something to visit. But it's probably best known for its fruit and its vegetable garden, which are always incredibly bountiful and visually appealing. So that's a big, strong point. And the cottage itself goes back, what is it, 150 years. And our retail shop is within the cottage. No one's living there at the moment? Uh, No staff are living on the site. It has got four houses, actually. Mm. But one of the great innovations is we've we've set up glamping there. So we've now got six tents. Mm. And I cannot underestimate how magnificent it is to wake up in a beautiful garden and have the whole garden to yourself. Whenever I go up there, I glamp and stay and have the whole garden to myself oh, in the beautiful. morning. So we have we have uh, wombats and kangaroos mm. and kookaburras and, um, you know, all interesting birds. What an experience. <laughs> <laughs> With all the trees that surround St Earth, how do you manage them and manage uh, the fire risk? Okay. I'm starting to plant oaks. Now, oaks will put a fire out. Don't know how big the bushfire is, but. To some extent, the worst uh, soil that you could uh, ever want to garden in, it's miners' rubble. So when they were looking for gold, they left the miners' rubble on the top and Tommy decided um, he wanted to garden in this place. So he, he spent 20 years, you know, mucking out stables and getting uh, manure mm. and building up the soil. Mm. So we haven't had to do that. And we've got the benefit of all the experiments that he's done as he's travelled around the country. Even with a lot of these exotic trees that you do plant, particularly it's an earth with the oaks that you're planting, now they drop their leaves in autumn, but mm-hmm. they don't break down super quickly. Do they pose a fire risk for the next summer? Not at that time. You need very high temperatures for it to be a fire risk. And it's a good rainfall. It's about six or 700 millimetres uh, rainfall. I think we've got to be careful from about mid-December through till the end of January. That's the fire risk days. But that means that the garden looks terrific outside those two periods. 
And it's a totally different garden to anything else in the area and nothing like Heronswood because it's a different climate. How is it different? Well, it's surrounded by bush, so mm. Heronswood has no bush around it. Um, so we can really plant whatever we like, whereas the bush is the defining background at St Earth. And so, uh, you know, our lawns don't look natural with the bush. So we've got a special bush garden, which has retained the original plantings, but the rest is artificially constructed, you know, with lawns and fantastic deciduous trees like tulip trees and... Um, what else have we got up there? Uh, we've got metasequoias, ginkgos, tilias, the usual special deciduous trees. All right, let's move on to our next section before we start talking about plant selection and some other alternatives to eucalypts. Bruce Pascoe's poem, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right. You might have to correct me. Kulakulup? That sounds good to me. Okay, I don't want to offend <laughs> anyone. It talks about the misunderstanding that colonial settlers had with the landscape and, and how the land was used. And that's a poem that sort of resonated with you. Why? Um, well, I was walking through the Melbourne Botanic Gardens with my family and I saw this fantastic poem mm. and I read it very carefully. I didn't know Bruce Pascoe at all, but really he's um, somewhat offended in his poem by the fact that no one really understood uh, the native vegetation and we just sort of ignored it and planted, as he's describing, the Melbourne Botanic Gardens, Guilfoyle planted the English approach to it. He was an English uh, landscape gardener. But I've been going around botanic gardens for about 20 years now and I've probably been to them 50 times and I was um, somewhat surprised that in his poem, he doesn't realise that our gardens or our garden directors have used our native rainforest trees extensively mm. in every particular garden. So I think one of the advantages of the botanic gardens is we've got 150 years experience with all these rainforest trees, uh, bunya pines, cedars, all those things have been incredibly successful. I hear what you're saying and I hear what Bruce is saying, but I think there's almost two different things we're talking about here. Is we're talking about the, there's the trees, which yep. you like Australian trees, you like the rainforest ones, that's fine. But then when we're talking about the lower story in the mm -hmm. garden and what yep. do you plant underneath those trees, there's no natives in there at all. And I wonder if that's where you and Bruce oh, are miscommunicating. Sure that, that Bruce is a um, flower gardener um, and most of the flowers are not natives in most countries. So we've managed to take annuals from just about everywhere in the world and use them because we can plant them at the right time. Mm. So I think what he's talking about is the perennial foliage of the trees. Mm. I think in a time of climate warming, we have the best examples of how we can cope with it and choose trees that have adapted. They're not flammable and they're going to provide um, shade mm. and do a better job than our, let's say, hot, dry climate uh, eucalypts will. So I find it uh, really incongruous that 99% of the food that we eat in this country is actually not Indigenous. So we're quite happy to rely on plants from other countries to feed us, but we're now saying we really only want to plant our native trees and not take imports or that's what the nativism is about. So there's some very curious psychology 
um, at foot as to why we're so nativist when it comes to vegetation but nothing else. A mate of mine um, runs a fantastic garden up in uh, northern Queensland called uh, the Panic Ark, and um, he's introduced all the f- uh, fruiting plants and flowers from right around the world. Mm. So nearly everything in his garden is um, introduced. It's the most extraordinary. And the only native plant food that we consume is really a macadamia. Mm. All our fruit, whether it's pears and apples and oranges, or all our tropical fruits are imported. Let's get on to plant selection. In the Diggers books, there's so much information about plant selection mm-hmm. and what people can use in their gardens. Let's focus on the trees for a moment because that's kind of what this mm-hmm. podcast is about. <laughs> Let's start with large gardens and move down to small gardens. What are some of the rainforest trees, oh. Australian trees that we can be using? Okay. Well, I've got a garden in Northcote. And I've planted uh, Cook's pine. Now, Cook's pine is a very tall tree, but it has it's, it's almost like a goalpost. So it's straight up and down. How wide does it get once well, it gets it's older? About two metres. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also planted a red cedar, which is growing at the most incredible rate. Red um, cedar is a tuna? Tuna australis. Mm-hmm. No, it's ciliata. Ciliata. Actually. So that's fantastic. I'm sitting back there and it's already five metres high. (laughs) And, you know, I'm 77, so I'm in a bit of a hurry to get there. But um, we can also use, you know, the fastidiate forms of pears and cherries and all of that stuff in a small garden, and we can use lots of palms. In terms of natives, I would say you could plant ginkgos. Hill's fig works very well as a hedge. We've got remains of ginkgo leaves in Alice Springs that go back 180 million years. Okay, so this is a whole other topic, (laughs) and I get this question from students quite often. When we're talking about natives, Mm. we're talking about, or exotic plants, whatever, we're talking about current-day political boundaries. Um, 180 million years ago, where was Australia and what was it doing? It was connected to supercontinent. Gondwana? Yes. Was it still Pangaea back then? Uh, yes, it was. Which is when those land masses were connected to China. So, yeah, cool. Ginkgo's native. Let's plant it. Well, not everyone will agree with you. I've got to... <laughs> no, they, they won't. It's just something that people do ask about. It's like, oh, well, Wallamai pine and, and in peat bogs in Tasmania, they've found Wallamai pine pollen. And pollen of goodness knows how many other species. You've just mentioned the ginkgo and finding fossils in northern Australia. But, yeah, you could call them all natives. So There's ginkgo remains actually in Bacchus Marsh too. There you go. go. It's getting closer to home. Oh, it's practically endemic. (laughs) (laughs) So, look, uh, we've been running this native debate actually for about 25 years. Mm. And I've got this fantastic quote which I haven't got in front of me. But this guy, um, I thought, made the most appropriate comment, which is, I only want to plant natives, natives of the planet, not natives of the country. Mm. Now, he actually said it more poetically than I have, but I think that would be my view at the end of the debate, that nativism, and that explains ginkgo. It's a pity we haven't got a picture here because I can see your face looking so disbelieving of it. But um, it's it's a different view as to what does it really matter that the plants are 
have moved from one continent to another? Does it matter? I don't know. And it's a really interesting point. What is on my face at the moment is the weed potential of mm-hmm. some of these plants. Ginkgo's not weedy. So let's call it native. Mm-hmm. Some of them, they're not going to be weedy at all. So that's fine. But when you bring in a plant to an area that mm-hmm. prior to humans being there hasn't naturally grown there, we find out that that species does mm-hmm. really, 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 really well. Mm-hmm. And you end up with this species taking over and you get a loss in biodiversity. Yeah. Well, that's probably not a good... food supply is introduced. Yeah. And they're not weedy. No, they're not weedy. No, no. So, so they're so fine to plant. okay for food. Yeah. Well, there's probably a whole heap of ornamental exotic plants that aren't weedy as well. But I think mm. it's just something that needs to be considered when we are planting plants. Yeah, that it doesn't have some crazy weed potential. No. Because quite. there's a whole heap of fauna and other flora that are reliant on particular species in an area that we just don't want to no. completely snuff out. I'm not sure that um, any of our native rainforest trees would meet any weedy criteria, actually. They're not that, uh, they don't spread that way. Okay. The substitutes for the eucalypts. Yep. Macadamia, we've mentioned before, mm-hmm. is a beautiful tree. Sure. And we sell it and recommend it. Well, everyone should just go and buy one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few others. There's a couple of different species of macadamia that people can put in. A lot Mm -hmm. of the lily pillies are suitable as well, and they come Mm -hmm. in tall trees and you can get them in smaller shrubs Mm -hmm. and the fruit's edible too. So there's a bit of a food component to that. We've got the native frangipanis and a lot of the brachychitans. So there's a flame tree, which is Mm -hmm. at Heronswood, and the Queensland bottle tree too. Mm -hmm. They're all suitable. Yep. What are some of your other suggestions for trees that people can well, put in their gardens? Of course, we've got to work out what size garden you've got. All right. So large gardens, I'd love to talk about large gardens and planting mm-hmm. big giant trees because they're so pretty. But what about some smaller gardens? What are some of the options? Hills Fig, which we talked about before. Mm. If you catch a plane to Sydney and you drive in from the airport to Sydney, Hills Fig is the dominant tree along that freeway. So it's about the size of a Morton Bay fig. Mm. in its natural condition. So that's the lush green one that is clipped as a hedge. Mm. Um, So that is the most universal, uh, manageable. In fact, that grows really well even in the sand. We've got good pictures of that. Very manageable. So that's terrific. Native frangipani. Mm, Stunning. Weeping lily pillow. And the native frangipani has a narrow habit too. Mm. It does get the height, but because it's narrow, it can fit in smaller spaces. I wouldn't grow it because I think it has lousy form myself, but I know it succeeds all right. I've seen some crappy forms. Yeah. How could people ensure that it grows really healthily? Oh, I can't answer that. I think it tends to have a bad form anyway. So you grow it for the scent. So you and don't the think it, you don't think it could be because of just poor soil? Oh, look, I don't know enough about it to okay. give you an opinion. Thanks for admitting that. That's all right. Um, <laughs> Uh, you're talking about small gardens. Yeah, small stuff. That's probably covered um, our particular list. All right. So aside from the native trees, give me a couple of selections of smaller trees that people could put in their gardens from anywhere in the world. I would love to grow the snow gum. <laughs> oh, we're going to end the, on that. <laughs> that's right, yes. That's my next uh, favourite. I'm really glad. You don't believe me, do you? <laughs> I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> You better send me a photo. Look, I I haven't done enough work. My daughter's um, experimenting with heaps and heaps of these uh, dwarf varieties. Mm. Um, So there's way more 
uh, expertise around than mine on that. So I think, I don't know, there's probably five or ten of them um, with exquisitely beautiful flowers. Mm. Just to finish off on, the Blazy Arboretum that yeah. you're creating, is there going to be a snow gum uh, in it's the Arboretum? Lots of, um, we call it the Blazy Arboretum because it's got nothing to do with diggers. It's my family. And, of course, when you plant trees, you're only going to be there for a small portion of its growth. Mm. And so uh, it's a family occupation. And so my children are helping us with the selection of those. What's the selection criteria? What do you want the Arboretum to look like? We want you to walk in there and swoon. (laughs) (laughs) So Sequoia Sempervirens, I've seen them in California. We've got them in Colac. We've got them in Warburton. We've got them substantially successful uh, throughout parts of Victoria. And uh, so we're growing a uh, sequoia forest. We're growing ginkgos. Black bouillon is one of my favourites. That's one of these rainforest trees that has fantastic buttress. If you're at the South Yarra end of the Melbourne Botanic Gardens, there's a magnificent specimen there. That's about 150 years old. That'll Mm. show you you've got a large garden and what a a magnificent rainforest tree that would be. Well, I must say thank you very much for your time, your wisdom and your knowledge today. I'm going to ask you one final question. Eucalypts, friend or foe? Oh, well, we call it friend and foe. So (laughs) So I think actually we've made enough progress. So friend or foe, we weren't sure about um, which they were. And I think we've got to the stage now where it's friend and foe. We all love them, but actually we've got to be alert to the threats that they pose. And so I guess the purpose of our talk is to get a whole lot of opinions from some native enthusiasts, as well as some of the cautious people like myself who don't want fires in a warming climate. All right. We'll leave it at that, Clive. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast is brought to you by the Diggers Foundation. In order to bring these discussions into the open, we require ongoing funding and ask that you visit the Diggers website for more information on our purpose and how to make a donation towards preserving garden traditions, educating Australian gardeners and making a better world through gardening. Visit www.diggers.com.au.